You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hello and welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Friday, February 25th, 2022. I'm Maggie Lake. The two stories dominating the markets this week, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the upcoming Federal Reserve meeting. To help us understand both, I'm joined by Dee Smith, founder and CEO of the Strategic Insight Group, and Joseph Wang, former senior trader at the Federal Reserve. Welcome to both of you. And Dee, I'd like to start with you first. We saw a big bounce in European and U.S. equities today. U.S. stocks just closing, rallying into the close at their highs of the day. The Dow up 834 points around, as we settled, 2.5%. We have the S&P up more than 2%. The NASDAQ, 1.5%. Oil backing down to $92 on WTI, $98 on Brent. Gold also slightly lower. Part of the catalyst headlines that Russians say they are willing to hold negotiations with Ukraine Is this just a tactical maneuver or do you think that Putin is looking for a diplomatic solution? You know, it's a complex situation. And what has happened is that the um, advance of the Russian troops, and it's a a multi-pronged attack on uh, on eastern Ukraine. They're not attempting to attack the West at this point. But they're being slowed down by Ukrainian resistance much more than they thought they would be. Um, They're having trouble um, uh, taking Kiev. They didn't think they would. Um, They're still, you know, really um, mostly stuck in the northern suburbs uh, and and other suburbs, but they're not effectively in the city center. There's a lot of um, of resistance around the country. And uh, I I think that they are feeling a pinch of that. And that's having two effects. One is that it is actually causing them to speed up their timeline in an attempt to do this more quickly. Um, but it is also giving them some pause. And, um, you know, the, the received wisdom on this kind of a situation is that it's relatively easy and easy in quotes there, but relatively easy to take a country, take down a country's the military. It's much more difficult to control it. So if they're already having problems taking it, I think it is giving them pause. And I think that there is some evidence that uh, there's some dissension um, in the uh, in the leadership and concern about what Putin's doing. There certainly uh, have been um, uh, you know demonstrations, which is a very dangerous thing for people in Russia to do now. So I think there is um, just some pause uh, in in thinking. Uh, that doesn't mean there's any pause in action, but they're yeah. just they're not um, they're not uh, being able to proceed as quickly as and as effectively as they thought they would. Now, having yeah. said that. There's no way that the Ukrainians can stop a full throttle Russian invasion, but they can make it very difficult. Yeah. And they appear to be doing that, as you say, perhaps something that Putin didn't calculate. There are so many moving parts to this, aren't there, Dee? Breaking in just the last 15 minutes, reports that the U.S. will impose sanctions on Putin himself may be symbolic, but but that is coming following in the footsteps of the EU. Russia is threatening Finland over NATO. We have uh 
China not coming out and condemning Russia, but reports that some of the state banks have restricted dollar financing in Russian commodities. A lot of uncertainty what's happening with the Black Sea and flow of goods there after some ships were 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 damaged. I mean, there is a lot going on. What should we be focused on as we head into the weekend? What are you going to be watching for as critical? Um, there are several things. Um, I think that we need to look at the um, the constraining factors on uh, on on Putin, which are there. There are several of those. You know, the um, uh, the resistance is one. Um, the morale is another one uh, that I think you know is related to the resistance and related to what I uh, I spoke about um, either the, uh, earlier. There's a um, uh, essentially a uh, how would you put it uh, a kind of dissolution of parts of the circle around Putin, perhaps. So he may be fighting some battles of his own. Um, you know, he. I think one of the things that is really concerning is that he has um, apparently, and I've talked to people who've talked to him in the past and recently, he is not the same person. He's been in isolation. He is um, not thinking perhaps very clearly. Um, apparently, every time anyone sits down with him, it's just a long diatribe of what's wrong with um, Ukraine and Russia and so forth. And, you know, he has also created some uh, effect that he did not intend. I mean, what he wanted to do, and I, this I'll, I'll, I'll have to attribute it. I keep it's not for attribution remark in a call I was on with a, a, a U.S. general um, yesterday. But uh, he wanted to make uh, Russia great again. And what he's ended up doing is making NATO great again. Mm. And so that's, you know, uh, it, it, he, this is not working out the way he he wanted it to. And and, you know, so that there are these limiting factors and I'm going to be watching how those play out. I'm going to be watching how quickly he can consolidate territory, uh, which is not as fast as he thought it would be. Um, I think the markets are being um, irrational in, to an extent, you know, every bit of bad news and they collapse and every bit of good news and they rally. And, um, you know, the situation, unless it begins to really work itself out very quickly, and which would mean that he stops where he is and does begin peace talks, you're dealing with a situation where, uh, you know, going to have huge market effects mm. of this uh, Russian oil and gas out of the picture. Um, you know, it, it, the projections now are that Europe's uh, primary energy bill is going to be about 1.2 trillion this year. That's about 200 billion more uh, than it was forecast last month. Um, you know, you've got some mitigating issues there. Saudi production increases, maybe a deal with Iran. You might put a couple of million barrels a day back in the market. But, you know, you've got food issues. I mean, together, Ukraine and Russia account for about 23, 24 percent of, of global wheat production. Um, wheat's up more than 5% this week on top of an 80% increase from April to December. Uh, sunflower oil, all these critical minerals, uranium, clay exports, titanium. You take those things out of the market because of, of, of a, a conflict-based a conflict, uh, situation, and you're going to have massive, uh, in, in, in an already inflationary environment, I might add, and an environment that's already plagued with um, uh, supply chain problems, going to have massive effects on the on the commodities market. Yeah, absolutely. It, you make such an interesting point about him coming out of isolation, you know, maybe out of touch with what's been going on. Um, you know, that that is not something we've heard. I, I'm sure that, you know, it, important not to underestimate him, though, at this point. Right. What do you 
What is your sense on what his grip of power is within Russia? Is this uh, a weakened uh, Putin that we're dealing with? Or is it just that he may have misread the situation but still has plenty of cards to play? I mean, we know what happens when people protest. He's had an ironclad lock on that country for so long. Do you think it's changing? Not at the moment. Um, I, I don't know if you watched that conference that he had with his advisors, um, with them all sitting in a semicircle, and he, he, he was over at the other side of the room. It was it was Orwellian. It was surreal. He was you know criticizing them, and uh, it was it, you know he's. I don't think he's lost his grip on power. He may have lost some of his grip on reality, and I think that's very concerning because you know. Uh, uh, you know, and I, I use this phrase in, 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 in the way I mean, but a mad king with nuclear weapons is not a good thing. And the other issue is that that he really only understands power. And if the West wants to stop him, and we're, we're starting to do this, but the you're going to have to ratchet up these, um, these um, sanctions. And they bite over, you know, weeks and months. And, you know, the Ukrainians just have days and hours. What about what about SWIFT? Does that put SWIFT back on the table, especially if there's a sense? I, I think SWIFT has always that... been on the table. Um, the Germans in particular and some other European countries don't want to see that happen because they're still dependent on um, various things, including energy from Russia. And what SWIFT is, I don't know if everybody knows, it's, a, yeah, it's, it's worth, essentially it's, a message. It's worth explaining. System. Yeah, it's the, it's it the, a, it's system a critical that, system, right, that sends secure payments between banks. It, it's the lifeblood of, of it, it all the trade yeah, flow. Yeah, it doesn't send payments. It sends messages about right. payments in a secure um, and, and, and a trusted way. And so there would be ways to work around it, but, it, but it, um, it's a highly symbolic move, almost a talismanic move. Uh, and, um, and, you know, the, the, the Germans in particular have not wanted to deploy it. But, it may, you know, if we're going to really stop him, uh, it, it's going to um, it's going to require some, you know, painful things that are going to be painful for the West. And, and here's the dilemma is that um, the danger to financial markets, if we do those things, becomes greater. Mm-hmm. Um, if we don't do them, if we go a road of appeasement, then there's very little danger to financial markets in the short run. I'm leaving out the possibility that this becomes a cyber war with an untold amount of damage. But leaving that to the side, it's not happening in any obvious way right now. Um, and that's a really uh, that's a doomsday kind of scenario because both sides can do it. And it's much easier to be offensive than defensive. But, it, it, you know, so the extent to which we we don't um, uh, let him get away with this, it's going to hurt the markets. It, it's my analysis to the extent that we appease that we, do, we, we don't we, we just slap his hand. The markets will have very little effect. So you've got this odd dichotomy there. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. One headline that caught my attention, uh, Meta, Facebook, was partially banned in Russia for fact-checking uh, 
content from state-owned media. Uh, is there a risk that Putin can't control the narrative? And there's also risk for countries like Germany and those who are sort of maybe holding back. There is a real possibility that we may all sit and witness mass Ukrainian casualties, a refugee humanitarian crisis playing out. And that is going to get out whether authorities like it or not, whether Russia bans uh, Facebook from Russia or not. I mean, there, with, with social media, we already are seeing, uh, you know, these images of civilians, you know, walking with suitcases. I mean, it's eerie. It's like going back in time. There's risk for both sides on this. But, you know, how important is controlling that narrative and, and, and who's more vulnerable? What would it mean for Putin, especially if, as you say, he doesn't completely have cohesion around this decision? It's it's very important to him to be able to do that, and and his it's another limiting factor that that he you know there are ways around that he does not have the kind of control over the internet that China does, for example, mm -hmm. um, and and of course he has very little control over um, Ukraine uh, other than to shut power off, which you would have to use a cyber attack to do, and um, so you know just as a sidebar, one of the fascinating things about this is these TikTok videos and others that. Uh, of, of things going on. And you can tell from the metadata, actually, that they are where they say they are. Now, having said that, there's a lot of fake videos of old videos and things that have been put in. So there's a lot of work going on to try to, you know, um, filter through those. But he is going to have trouble um, controlling the narrative, particularly when Russian soldiers come home in body bags. And, uh, and that is going to have the kind of impact on even the Soviet Union in the days of Afghanistan and before anybody ever heard of the internet, um, couldn't control that narrative and ended up having to have, you know, it was, it was the, essentially the same kind of experience we had in Afghanistan. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think it's a, a short term thing will work for him, but as it drags on and, and gets more onerous, he's going to be more motivated to, um, to call some kind of a halt to it or the other danger is he may before that be more motivated to become more brutal and it could get really nasty and um you know the kinds of things that were done in chechnya and so forth and i hope that doesn't happen but it is certainly within the realm of possibility and it's really concerning and we it, will see pictures of that it, it is so concerning um extraordinary times uh that that we are in right now do we so appreciate you coming on and sharing your insight please come back again soon Look forward to it. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you so much. Now, the other big story, of course, is the Federal Reserve. And they're intertwined right now because markets are trying to grapple with both of these forces. Uh, before this week, the Fed was the main story. And we did have data out today, partially overshadowed by developments in Ukraine, which so showed the PCE, one of the Fed's favorite inflation gauges, was the highest since the early 80s. Consumer spending and durable goods orders were also stronger than expected. Let's bring in Joseph into the conversation who's been patiently listening. And Joseph, um, there's so much for, for investors, for market participants to grapple with, given everything we've seen on the geopolitical and data front. What are you expecting from the Fed next week? Well, hey, Maggie. First of all, thanks for inviting me here. I really love Real Vision. And thanks, Steve, for a great discussion. That was super interesting. You know, before this whole Ukrainian thing happening, what the market was thinking about was what would the Fed do? And I think to understand what the Fed would do in the next meeting is to look at the world from the Fed's perspective. What does the Fed care about? Again, 
full employment and price stability. Now, where are we on those? Full employment has been met. We see employment conversation at multi-year highs. You've had Fed governors come out and tell you that we've met full employment. And so what about inflation? Well, inflation is uh, far, far above the 2% uh, where the Fed would like it, like you mentioned. So from this lens, you can kind of interpret what Ukraine and this Russia saying will impact the Fed. As Dean mentioned, there's a potential here for significant surges in commodity prices. So the Ukraine incident, that is a potential upside risk for inflation, something reminiscent of what we saw in the negative supply shock in oil back in the 70s. So in my view, this the thing keeps the Fed on track. I mean, there's, there's no way the Fed is going to let's say, look at this and become more easy. They're going on track to going to hike probably once every meeting. The more recent take we have from this is from a speech by Governor Waller a couple of days ago. And he was still open to 50 basis points. Now that's probably not 50 basis points in March. Now that's probably not the most likely outcome, but if we get a big CPI print in say March 10, when, when the next one comes out, that's on the table. So right now, What's happening in Ukraine hasn't changed the Fed's calculus, in my view. Yeah, if anything, perhaps put put more pressure on them as they try to grapple with inflation. I mean, do you think we always talk about the Fed having blunt instruments to try to deal with this? Do you think that they are going to be successful in trying to trying to fight inflation? How much of this is an expectation game and how much do we have to wait? Because there is a lag between what they do and any effect on the economy, how are you thinking about all of that? And will that determine the the pace of tightening? Do they need to be more aggressive to sort of show they're getting in front of it? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So the Fed raises overnight to rates and tightens, and how does that actually feed into the real economy? I don't really think there's a consensus on this. Mm-hmm. I think most economists have the view that you've just enunciated monetary policy acts with a longer variable lag. So if we hike now, Maybe sometime in the future, things will slow down. But when Chair Powell was asked about this, he's like, yeah, I don't think that's how it works. In fact, when I hike rates, you know, that's immediately priced into the markets. And he's right. So the Fed, by communicating that he is, uh, that the Fed is going to hike maybe multiple times this year, you can already see that price into the short-term interest rate markets, price in the two-year treasury, and price into the belly. So I think in the impact is immediate. But here's the thing, though. It, it seems like, in my view, the impact of the Fed is much stronger on the financial markets than the real economy. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if an extra, let's say, one, 200 basis points is going to affect on consumer spending or business investment. It, it doesn't seem like it would make a difference, especially when, let's say, um, in an inflation environment where businesses are having record profits and employees are having record wage gains. So I think the primary impact would be on the market and it can be a substantial impact. So yeah. the way that I look about this is that the primary mechanism from how the Fed impacts markets is its impact on the debt market. The Feds by raising rates, very direct impact on let's say short-term to medium dated treasuries. And then they're promising to do very aggressive QB to make sure the long end goes up as well. And 
when you're doing that though, mechanically what happens is you're haircutting everyone's bond portfolios. And if you do that, just through rebalancing mechanisms, let's say you're a target A fund, maybe you're just a classical investor with a 60-40 portfolio, maybe let's say you're a you know, risk parity strategy hedge fund, you're gonna to have to sell equities to rebalance. So I think that impact is probably the most direct impact. And you see that kind of play out a little bit heading into this year. And I think we're we're not done yet. So this is so this is so important. So you're talking about what we refer to as quantitative tightening, correct? Right. Um, the reducing your balance sheet. And we mentioned at the beginning of the program that you uh, are a former Fed trader. You were on the open markets desk, uh, the, the open markets desk during, if I'm not mistaken, during their last attempt at quantitative tightening. So you really understand the mechanics of this in a way that most of us don't. What do we need? So uh, if I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying that just by the mechanics of how this works, everyone takes a haircut, you have to rebalance, and therefore you're going to have to sell equities. From where we are now, what, what does that look like? What kind of downside risk does that present? It, that's really hard to measure. So basically what's going to happen in the coming months is the Fed is going to try to, what they would say is, increase the term premium of longer data treasuries. And what we would say is they're trying to make the treasury rate go higher. And there are good reasons for this, right? So if you look at the housing market, we're going up 20, 30% a year. That's not that's not socially desirable. That makes housing unaffordable and there's a risk of financial instability there. So the Fed is an allowance, aggressive quantitative tightening, and you can see the mortgage markets already respond. So in just in the past couple of months, primary mortgage rates have gone up 1%, so 3% to 4% now. Um, what what that actually what the Fed is trying to do is increase the supply of duration into the market. Longer dated treasury rates are largely determined by supply and demand. Fed holds five and a half trillion dollars in treasuries. It holds two and a half trillion dollars in mortgage uh, agency MBS. So by trying to get that off its balance sheet, by letting it roll off, potentially selling the agency MBS, you can significantly increase supply of that into the market and push it higher. Now the Fed hasn't been clear how or I guess the rate at this will do it, but they've been leaking out or hinting at very aggressive rates. You know, President Bostic suggesting that it could be at least $100 billion a month. The Fed has this lever here where it's trying to increase term premium and it has the tools to do it by increasing supply. Now we won't exactly know how much, but it's gonna go higher and that's gonna impact people's portfolios, and that's going to lead to rebalancing into the equity market because all markets are connected. Yeah. So it sounds like there's a huge amount of risk for equity. It's not a sentiment. It's not, you're not making a judgment call, just based on the mechanics of how this works. Every road seems to lead back to people having to sell equities. Am I overstating that? That's that's how I view this. Listen, the Fed has control over rates. It's telling you it wants rates to go higher. That's just not good for risk assets like equities. If you're a traditional value investor, you would talk about things like a dividend discount model or something like that. I don't really believe in stuff like that. I just say mechanically, a whole bunch of people who are holding treasuries and equities are going to have to sell some of their equities to rebalance. 
And the level of that rebalancing is enormous. People who have uh, these assets, these strategies are in the trillions of dollars. And you have to combine another aspect as well, which is also super important. Market liquidity isn't very good right now. Yes. I think what happened is that we have these enormous asset values go up higher because liquidity isn't good, but that reverses as well. An easy way to see this is just what happened to Facebook, uh, say mm -hmm. a few weeks ago, just a trillion dollar stock going down 25%. That's just straight up evidence that liquidity is not good. Trillion dollar stocks are not supposed to trade like penny stocks. So when you say there's no liquidity, can can I can can we also phrase that that it's getting it's going to kind of pushed up by this squeeze by passive investing by these flows that are going in, but there's no buyers on the downside when something turns. Is is that is that a fair way to describe the liquidity that you're talking about? Like why is there no liquidity? I, I'm not really sure. I think that Mike Green's passive investment theory, which I think you're alluding to, I yeah. think that makes a lot of sense to me. And you know, I just it seems what happens is that the the asset values of these stocks, the prices go up much, much faster than the actual market depth. So when people are trying to sell, it, it's like an auditorium. It, it auditorium gets bigger, the exits don't really get the same. People can go out at the same time. So prices kind of fall out. And this is not just about the equity market. This is the treasury market as well. So Treasuries, cash treasuries, one day is about $600 billion a day in transactions, $23 trillion to marketable treasuries. Okay, rewind back 20 years ago, cash treasuries, daily transactions, about $400 billion, just a little bit smaller than what they are today. But back then, marketable treasuries was like $6 trillion. So it's like, you know, 20, 30% of what they are now. So you have the same thing happening in all our markets. That makes the, the potential for volatile moves. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. You, you saw what we saw what happened last time. You were right at the, uh, in the thick of it. Uh, you know, the, the, they, they thought the repo market broke. We had this, you know, massive move. We had markets not working properly and the Fed had to stop. Do you feel like, because it wasn't so long ago that you worked there. Do 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 Fed does the Fed broadly, not just the FOMC, feel like they have a better understanding this time around, or are they once again sort of operating without a playbook, hoping for the best, and then they'll have to react in real time if things start to break? I think that they think they understand better together, but I don't know if they actually do. And I say this because the tool that they have that is supposed to fix what was broken last time, it's something called a standing repo facility. The standing repo facility is basically the Fed willing to lend almost unlimited amounts of money into the repo market. Now, in theory, this is supposed to prevent anything from breaking during quantitative tightening. But the thing is, that was what was breaking last time. 
But the chat dynamics of the financial system are different this time. So that isn't really going to come into play at all. From so, my view, what happens yeah. during quantitative tightening is that you reduce the cash balances of banks, you reduce the reserves. Now, the biggest impact on markets is what the banks were using that cash for. During the last quantitative tightening, banks were taking their cash, their reserves, so reserves are cash for banks, and investing it into the repo market. When quantitative tightening was happening, they were taking money out of banks, who in turn were reducing their investments in repo markets because they have less cash. So eventually the repo market hit an air pocket and it blew up. This time around, banks aren't investing in repo at all. It doesn't make sense. Repo rates are too low. What they've been investing their QE cash in, in are in treasuries and agency MBS to the tune of trillions of dollars. So if anything breaks this time, it's not going to be repo. It's probably somewhere in the rate space. Uh, this is such an important conversation, Joseph, because, you know, the, the, these are the sort of the, the I keep going back to the word mechanics, but I think that that's right about what happens when we're in this uncharted territory. And I think what so many people worried about as we stayed here for so long. So I'm going to go back to the issue of so. So if something breaks, it's in rates. And because of the maneuvers the Fed has to make, we keep going back to the idea of that people are going to have to sell equities. In both of those situations, is there still a Fed put? Will the Fed, what is the pain threshold that the Fed will get nervous that things are spiraling out of their control? Because a lot of people are saying, listen, the Fed puts dead. They're, they're focused on inflation. They're willing to sacrifice growth. They're willing to sacrifice, uh, you know, pretty big pain in risk assets, in asset markets in order to get control of inflation. You're laying out a scenario that sounds very ominous and problematic and something that I cannot imagine that the Fed would get behind. So do you think that there will be a backstop if things start to, if we start to see uh, dislocation in either of those spaces? And do you have any thought about what that would look like? Yeah, I think that's a really good question because people do commonly think there's a Fed put and they're right to think that. But I, I would actually rewind the clock a little bit post-TFC. This, where, where this whole wealth effect thing began. So post-GFC, we had very low growth and um, very low inflation. The Fed wanted to help the economy out. What do they do? They try to blow an asset bubble, Bernanke's wealth effect. Why do they do this? The Fed doesn't have power to spend, but it can have a lot of influence over asset prices. So the thinking is, if people have more assets will higher asset prices they'll feel wealthier they go out they buy they spend they lend that will help growth that will help inflation you know let's say you had some tesla stock went up 10 times you feel richer maybe you go buy a car maybe you buy a house that stimulates the economy and that's okay because growth is slow inflation is also low rewind to today what's happening we have tremendous inflation asset prices historic highs, consumers are wealthier than they've ever been. Now, we know the Fed thinks of wealth as a policy tool. It pumped it up to make inflation go higher, and now it can use it in the reverse wealth effect way. Let's say everyone slightly less wealth, slightly less money in the economy, 
that decreases demand, that helps inflation, which is the biggest problem in the Fed's eyes right now. So I actually think it's, I won't say it's intentional, but it's not an undesirable outcome to have lower asset prices. You can think of it as making housing more affordable. You can think of it as reducing demand, or you can think of it as shrinking the amount of wealth inequality in our economy, since it's really, uh, the wealth is held by a very small percentage of people. Now, I don't know if they're intentionally doing this, but I don't think it's a it's a it's an outcome that they're trying to avoid. Yeah, that's a, that's an excellent point. I was thinking redistribution of wealth while you were saying that. However, I think it's all predicated on the fact that it it happens orderly, and that's the wild card, isn't it? <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. There's yeah, this, that's once the it, once it, It'll feed on itself. So eventually, I, I agree. There's a Fed put somewhere. I don't think we're anywhere close to it. Yeah. Then that's going to be something we debate. I want to I want to squeeze a question in, um, even though we're almost out of time. Um, Tim from the RV site asks, "What are your thoughts on the junk bond market and going short in the rising interest rate environment?" So junk bonds. I mean, I know they've been selling off. Part of that it is, of course, duration rates are going higher. That's going to be price. I, I'm skeptical about this talk about credit risk, and the reason being that we are in an inflationary environment, right? inflationary environment, that means cash flows go higher. That means there's more revenue. Whereas the junk bonds, they were borrowed, you know, in the past, rates are at historic lows. It seems like they will have no problem paying it off. Now, maybe with the rollover, over, that might be troublesome, but that that's, that's not the bonds already taken out. So, um, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't worry about companies having trouble paying that. They should, if you look at the data, corporate profits are historically high and inflationary scenario, revenues will continue to increase. Joseph, this was so much fantastic information for us to think about as we head into what's going to be a really critical couple of weeks. Um, so thank you so much for that. Uh, so great to hear somebody who sort of understands the inner inner belly of the Federal Reserve Uh for a change um, and helping us understand a little bit better. So thank you so much. And thanks to all of you for watching. Great conversation. I hope you um, had a lot of takeaways that you can use over the weekend to think as we enter a, a new week. It's certainly going to be volatile and, and we're going to have to be, be really careful and nimble. Uh, if you are a Real Vision viewer, by the way, um, contact us if you might want to work with us because we are hiring. Just want to mention that as we talk about those tight labor markets. Uh, and have a great weekend. We'll see you again next week. Take care and good luck out there. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com.